0: Just a week away from where the roly-poly man in the big red suit, along with the eight tiny reindeer and Rudolph, will be out there bringing the gifts to all those who are nice. And if you're naughty, he's going to put the coal under the tree. That's just a week away. But tonight, we're going to spend the next 60 minutes talking about sports. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Ultimate Sports Talk Show. I'm Dave Mitchell here at UltimateSportsTalk.com, and we've got a lot of things going on this evening as we wind down the year 2013. Of course, some of the headlines leading into tonight's show, the college bowl season is upon us, and it begins this Saturday. A Heisman Trophy winner has been named, the baseball winner meetings are over, and the Tribe has brought in a new closer and reliever. Are the Cavaliers really playing better basketball, and are the Portland Trail Blazers a legitimate contender in the West? The Ohio State basketball team is ranked third in the nation. Tonight we look at a story detailing the top 10 worst sports franchises of all time, and number one will probably not surprise you. The good, the bad, and the ugly, plus there is no NFL game tonight, but first... Florida State quarterback Jameis Winston, the nation's top-rated passer who led his team to college football's title game in his first season, was named the 2013 Heisman Trophy winner Saturday night as the country's best collegiate player. Winston, who's 19, became the youngest player and second straight redshirt freshman to win the award following Texas A&M quarterback Johnny Manziel. Winston completed nearly 68% of his passes For 3,800 yards, 38 touchdowns, and 10 interceptions. Undefeated Florida State plays Auburn in the January 6th Bowl Championship Series title game. Winston won the 79th Heisman over five other finalists invited to the ceremonies in New York. Those were Alabama quarterback A.J. McCarron, who finished second. Northern Illinois quarterback Jordan Lynch, who finished third. Boston College running back Andre Williams, who finished fourth. Manziel, who finished fifth, and Auburn running back Trey Mason, who finished sixth. Former Ohio State running back Eddie George, himself a Heisman winner and who has a vote, leaves no doubt who he placed his vote for.
1: It was definitely a special night for Jameis Winston. I'm glad that he did win. Clearly the best player in the country. Fantastic year despite all the stuff that he went through. Definitely deserves it. And when you go through that night, it's such a special time to be in New York at the ceremony and to win that award. is truly a special deal. Congratulations. He's a part of a great fraternity.
0: Well, Winston and Manziel are the only first-year players to win the award in the four decades since freshmen and redshirt freshmen have been allowed on varsity NCAA sports teams. Manziel said this week he did not vote for himself. He does have a vote since he is a former Heisman Trophy winner. He didn't vote for himself either in first or second place on the ballot. Now, you all know how I feel. I don't think it's right that this award go to a freshman. I think it should go to a senior. I think McCarron should have won the award or Andre Williams from Boston College. Winston did have a good year. He played for an excellent ball club. But the caliber of talent that Winston went up against was not that of McCarron or even Carlos Hyde, who wasn't even invited to New York. So that was the big story in college football this week. And then the second biggest story in college football was the fact that finally, after he said he was staying, Mack Brown announced that he is resigning as head coach of the University of Texas Longhorn. So members of the Texas Search Committee that helped select athletic director Steve Patterson also will assist in finding a successor to Mac Brown. The university announced on Wednesday an eight-member advisory panel that includes two members of the UT System Board of Regents Steve Hicks and Robert Stilwell as well as former regent Robert Rowling. They're joined on the committee by UT Professor Michael Clement, US Federal Judge Ricardo Hinoso, former ExxonMobil Vice President Charles Matthews, Capital Royalty Chairman Charles Tate and Pamela Wilford, Former U.S. Ambassador to Switzerland and Liechtenstein, and former chair of the Texas Higher Education Coordinator Board. Does anybody on this committee know anything about football? They just named eight people, and none of them have anything to do with a collegiate football program. But nonetheless, here are some of the names that are being bandied about. There are six top names being bandied about. Nick Saban is not one of them, thank heavens. Art Bryles of Baylor, now hiring the Baylor coach might seem like slumming for some Texas fans, because Baylor is the little brother to the University of Texas, but any coach that can turn Baylor into Big 12 champs deserves a look. He's 36-15 and in the last four years for Baylor. Then comes Jimbo Fisher of Florida State, the 48-year-old former Nick Saban assistant, has turned Florida State back into a national powerhouse in four seasons since taking over for Bobby Bowden. He's 44-10 and 10 and reportedly has agreed to a new five-year deal last week that will push his salary to $4 million per season, but you know that has absolutely nothing to do with anything anymore. There's James Franklin of Vanderbilt. The 41-year-old has star quality, which you need for the Longhorn Network, owned by ESPN. He's young, handsome, charismatic, as many say, and he's 23 and 14 at Vanderbilt, which is pretty much impossible, but he has done it. Then comes Mike Gundy of Oklahoma State. He's also rumored to be in the running for the Dallas Cowboys new head coaching position should the Cowboys release Jason Garrett. The 46-year-old former Oklahoma State quarterback has been coaching his alma mater since 2005, and he's 77 and 37. He's in the second year of an eight-year contract worth $3.8 million a year. Then comes Jim Harbaugh of the San Francisco 49ers. Ask him about his interest in the Texas job, and he may punch you out. It took him two years to take the 49ers to the Super Bowl after arriving from Stanford, and he turns 50 this month. And finally, Jim Mora from UCLA. Now, the former NFL coach has had some doubters when he entered the college game last year but not anymore he's high energy and in two years he's proved capable of landing elite recruits he's 18 and 8 overall 12 and 6 in the Pac-12 but he also recently agreed to a new six-year contract extension one name missing from this list Will Muschamp he was the heir apparent three years ago and was expected to take over for Mac Brown when Brown decided to step down But then he couldn't wait. He became impatient. He took the Florida job three years ago, and that basically has destroyed his reputation by taking that job. Not only is Texas not interested in him, but he's pretty much destroyed the Florida program. Now, Nick Saban, he's out of the running, supposedly. You never know about Nick. He told the Miami Dolphin people that he wasn't leaving, and the next day he was off to Alabama. But according to Saban, He and the football program are moving on. Saban supposedly has put to rest the speculation that he would replace Brown by striking a new deal with Alabama for $7 million a year. $7 million to be football coach at the University of Alabama. That is unbelievable. And he says he plans to retire at Alabama. We'll see if that is the case. Well, the bowl season begins this weekend. On Saturday, we've got four games. Let's take a look at what's going on this weekend. The New Mexico Bowl kicks off at two o'clock on Saturday afternoon. That features Colorado State seven and six, taking on Washington State at six and six. Then comes the Las Vegas Bowl. That's at three thirty. Fresno State, eleven and one, bounced out of the BCS Bowl games in their last game of the year. We'll take on USC. Who coaches USC right now, nobody knows. They're 9-4 going into the game, but USC will be coached by Steve Sarkeesian next year. Then comes the famous Idaho Potato Bowl. Well, San Diego State plays Buffalo. Two teams that played Ohio State this year and were beaten by the Buckeyes. San Diego State, 7-5, Buffalo 8-4. And finally on Saturday, it is the New Orleans Bowl. That's at 9 o'clock Saturday night. Tulane will be playing Louisiana Lafayette. Now, there is one game Monday. That's the Beef Brady's Bowl. That's at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. East Carolina, 9-3, will take on Ohio. And then on the day after Christmas, the 26th, there are two games. Little Caesars Pizza Bowl is at 6 o'clock. That features Pittsburgh, 6-6, against MacChamp Champ Bowling Green at 10-3. And then comes the Poinsettia Bowl. That's at 9.30 the day after Christmas. Utah State, 8-5, and will play Northern Illinois. Of course, they are 12-1 and one and out of the map. Now, our bowl preview show will be next week, the day after Christmas. I'm going to take a look at the Orange, Rose, Fiesta, Cotton, and Sugar Bowl games, along with the BCS Championship games. That's coming up on next week's show. We'll take a look at pro football later on in tonight's show. But again, the Associated Press Top 25 poll is out. And the Ohio State Buckeyes this week at 11-0, and coming off their win over Delaware last night. Delaware State, I should say. They're ranked third. Now, one opinion about this. If Ohio State is the number three team in the country, it's a very weak college basketball crop this year. Arizona, still number one. They're 11-0. and Boy, did they squeak out a game against Michigan on Saturday. I watched that game Very exciting ball game that Arizona ended up on top. Then comes Syracuse number two, Buckeyes are three, Wisconsin four, Michigan State five, Louisville, the defending national champs are six. Then comes Oklahoma State, Duke, Villanova, and Connecticut rounds out the top ten. North Carolina senior guard Leslie McDonald was finally cleared by the NCAA to resume playing for the Tar Heels and return to the lineup Wednesday night against Texas. The NCAA made the announcement about four hours before tip-off for the 14th-ranked Tar Heels, 7-2, and and the Longhorns game, won by North Carolina. McDonald missed the first nine games and must repay just over $1,700 to a charity of his choice after receiving improper benefits from numerous individuals during the spring and summer in the form of luxury cars, payment of parking tickets, a cell phone and logic. Now, this is what is confusing because supposedly the school had not identified specifically McDonald's eligibility issues before the announcement. But in its reinstatement letter to the NCAA, the school said McDonald drove a 2009 Porsche Cayenne registered to a woman who shared Thomas's home address. Well, if she shared his home address, why can't he drive the car? McDonald said he used the car for five days in late June and early July. Again, the NCAA and their rationale just completely boggled the mind. Let's move into the NBA, out of the college ranks and into the NBA on tonight's Ultimate Sports Talk Show. The Cleveland Cavaliers have now lost two straight games to the Miami Heat and the Portland Trailblazers over the past few days. And in the midst of all that, Cavaliers guard Dion Waiters, the subject of trade rumors for the past several weeks, has said that he has not asked the team to deal him. Speaking before Tuesday's game against Portland, Waiters said he is happy and comfortable in Cleveland and was surprised by the Internet report that he had requested a trade to Philadelphia, which is in his hometown. The trade talk involving the second-year guard began last month When reports surfaced, Waiters was involved in a confrontation with teammates following a 29-point loss in Minnesota. Waiters denied those rumors after they came out, and he's the Cavaliers' second-leading scorer so far this year, averaging just over 14 points a game. He's been coming off the bench since mid-November as Coach Mike Brown searched for the right combinations after the Cavs got off to a 4-12 start. Cleveland has now won five of their last eight ball games and they've got two games coming up this weekend, including one on Friday night against the Milwaukee Bucks. Now currently the Cavaliers are nine and fifteen overall, tied with the Bulls for the eighth and final playoff spot in an amazingly weak Eastern Conference. I'm going to take a look at the standings here in just a little bit. However, over the past four games, the Cavs have become better on the offensive end under defensive coach Mike Brown. Cleveland is averaging 110 points per game, and they appear to be getting better, at least in the eyes of their head coach.
2: They've gotten better at doing, and, not, it's, and it's not all them, and us telling them to do stuff and doing it, but they have gotten better at doing what we're asking and demanding of them in terms of pushing the pace. I think anybody can see that. Uh, Kyrie's done a phenomenal job of getting that ball and going with it and taking advantage of his speed and his skill set before the defense even has a chance to get set. Our wings are doing a better job of running the floor and getting to the corners and flattening the defense. We're getting more quality looks early in the shot clock than what we did at the beginning of the season. And a lot of it has to do with the comfort level, the familiarity of what we're trying to do offensively. Not only that, I simplified some things, you know, for a group, and and, and the flow is a lot better. So we have guys that can shoot. We have guys that can score in a lot of different ways. And it's starting to show a little bit. Now are we gonna keep it there? now, You know, but, but we do want to attack before the defense is set. And uh, it it's showing at times, especially as of late, and uh in our point production and not only that, I think our field goal percentage has been been pretty high too. But it, it, we're spending a lot of time on that in the floor because we feel like we have a foundation in defensively. And I said this you know, I've said this a few weeks ago. So we we're able to spend more time on the offense than there for, Try to balance it out.
0: Right now, the Indiana Pacers have the best record in the Eastern Conference. They're twenty and five. Then comes Miami at nineteen and six. They are the only two teams above five hundred in the Eastern Conference. The next best team is Atlanta. Then comes Detroit, Charlotte, and the rest of the teams all are in single digits and wins. Now, in the Western Conference, completely different. When you look at what's going on over there, first of all, the team with the best record in the league, Portland Trailblazers. They're twenty two and five, and they seem to be the most improved team. And boy, they may be the most explosive. They won Tuesday in Cleveland on a last second shot by Damian Lillard. Then they lost in Minnesota last night by eleven. They're explosive they get the ball out and go, and they have a new center in Robin Lopez, which allows them to move LaMarcus Aldridge to the four spot, and he is just dominating the other power forwards in the league. In the same division, though, is Oklahoma City. They're 20-4, and four, so this may be a war in the Northwestern Division of the Western Conference the rest of the year. The other team that's got an outstanding record in the West, well, that's San Antonio. <laughs> They're and 5 and leading the Southwest Division. Hey, this word just breaking out of the NBA in Los Angeles. The Lakers are announcing that guard Kobe Bryant will miss six weeks now with a fractured tibia in his left leg. Bryant is only weeks away from having returned from his torn Achilles heel that he suffered last spring, making this the second major leg injury inside of a year. Now, it's a brutal blow for the Lakers who are just starting to gel after a win over the Bobcats and Grizzlies, with Bryant picking up steam to make a possible playoff run. So far this season, the Lakers are 12 and 13, despite playing the first 19 games of the year without Kobe Bryant. Just another note on tonight's Ultimate Sports Talk Show: the NCAA Women's Volleyball Final Four is going to be played tonight on ESPN Two uh, in just a few minutes at 7:30. Wisconsin is going to be playing the first game against Texas. And then in the second game, Washington will be playing Penn State. So two teams out of the Big Ten this year in the Final Four for women's volleyball. The championship game is going to be played on Saturday night. So that should be very interesting tonight, beginning in just about 10 minutes on ESPN2. Time for our Good, the Bad, and the Ugly segment for this evening. And I think this one is a pretty good item to lead off tonight. The Fight Hunger Bowl is going to make history this year with two female officials. Let's look at it this way. They can't do any worse than the men have done throughout the football season. The game between BYU and Washington on December 27th in San Francisco will be called by a crew from Conference USA that includes Sarah Thomas as a line judge and Maya Chaka as a head linesman. The NCAA National Coordinator of Officials, Rogers Redding, says it will be the first time two female officials have worked the same FBS game. Thomas became the first female official in major college football in 2007, and the first to work a bowl game in 2009 at the Little Caesars Bowl. A Division II game earlier this year between Miles College and Lane had four female officials, and that was billed as the first NCAA game with a majority female officiating crew. Here's the bad for tonight. The New York Mets are kicking the tires on Chris Perez, As a potential late-inning addition, according to Anthony DeComo of MajorLeagueBaseball.com, DeComo notes that Perez could serve as ninth-inning insurance for New York if Bobby Parnell isn't healthy. Of course, Perez is the two-time All-Star from the Cleveland Indians who had a history of controversy during his time with the Tribe. He has been the closer with Cleveland for the past four seasons and recorded 36 saves with the team in 2012, which was his career's high. But last year, he saved 25 games, but his ERA, along with his weight, ballooned up to 4.33. Now, with Perez's history, considering his arrest last year, is New York really the right place for him? And I guess the question is, since the pot was allegedly sent to the dog, are the Mets going to require that the dog not live in the same domicile as Perez and his wife? Will the dog have to have a change of address card? I, I kind of think that the team that is best suited for Chris Perez may be Texas. They just lost Joe Nathan to the Detroit Tigers, and he's been their closer for the last couple of years just simply because Neftali Perez has been rehabbing from Tommy John reconstructive elbow surgery for the past 14 months. Feliz was used as a reliever through the end of the 2013 regular season and the playoffs, but the 25-year-old right-hander is going to be given an opportunity to pitch his way back into a rotation spot next spring. Texas just seems to be the perfect spot for Perez with his problems. First of all, they handled the situation with Josh Hamilton extremely well. They've handled what they've done with Ron Washington very well. And with Perez needing some coddling, I think Texas might be the best spot for him. Definitely not the New York Mets. And the ugly, I think most of us saw what happened on Sunday night when Pittsburgh linebacker Terrence Garvin hit Cincinnati punter Kevin Huber in the Steelers' victory over the Bengals. Now, Huber was the punter going for a tackle, and Garvin made the block, but he did hit him with the crown of his helmet in the jaw, and it broke Huber's jaw. And then Huber also sustained a cracked vertebrae when Garvin decked him near midfield during Antonio Brown's 67-yard punt return for a touchdown. For that incident, Garvin was fined $25,000. I don't agree with the fine. I think the hit was legal. I don't like the fact that they are making kickers and punters now defenseless players. If they can hit somebody and tackle somebody, they shouldn't be classified as defenseless players. But nonetheless, the ugly part of this was the fact that that hit really was a very hard hit on Huber, and it was ugly to watch him run off the field. That's going to do it for our good-the-bad and the ugly segment for tonight. I want to move forward on this evening's ultimate sports talk show. And I think where we need to move forward to, our producer of the show is Greg Mitchell. And Greg cued me in on an article, brought it to my attention yesterday, that is in GQ magazine for this week. And it talks about the top 20 worst franchises in sports history. Well, let's talk about that a little bit, because I'm not going to go over all 20 of them, although the Buffalo Bills are involved, the Pittsburgh Pirates. Uh, I want to go over the top 10. I think number one you'll find (laughs) very interesting. But the number 10 team on this list, is the Detroit Wheels. Now the Wheels are a team that went one and thirteen in their fourteen game schedule, which was supposed to be twenty, when they were in the short lived World Football League. They signed a couple of players, Larry Zonka, Kenny Stabler, but they were a lot of pro rejects in nineteen seventy four. They finished one and thirteen they were supposed to have a 20-game schedule. They only played 14 games because they had to claim bankruptcy. The number nine team, the Indianapolis Racers. And you can put this under, they traded Wayne Gretzky. Because back in the mid-1970s, out of the WHA, they wanted to upstage the NHL with high-scoring matchups. They compiled losing games of 10 nothing and 12-2. to And like I said, the reason they're in this list, they traded Wayne Gretzky. And the number eight team, the Providence Steamrollers. In the late 1940s, the Steamrollers, billed as the fastest, fleetest, breaking team in pro basketball, promised fans a ding-dong battle on the hard court, whatever that was. Instead, the Steamrollers were the league's ineptest, losingest team to this day. They hold the NBA record for fewest wins in a season, six. And after three years, they ended up with a 275 winning percentage. Then, at number seven, come the Kansas City Royals. This is going to be hard to believe this upcoming season. Pity the four baseball fans of Kansas City. They've witnessed hideous baseball since 1984 when the Kansas City Cowboys won only 16 of 82 games. At number six, well, I agree with this one. The New York Jets. Mark Sanchez's butt fumble on Thanksgiving Day last year was no anomaly for the Jets. It was just a metaphor for their special breed of creative destruction, a multi-decade role of suck interrupted only by their shock blip, Super Bowl three upset of the Baltimore Colts. And number five, the Charlotte Bobcats. And when you look at this article, you will see Michael Jordan With his head in his hands wondering, how could I have accumulated this kind of talent? After going from goat to goat while running the Washington Wizards, Michael Jordan was giving carte blanche for the flailing Bobcats, and he has led it even deeper into despair. Number four, the Los Angeles Clippers. Well, they've got CP3 and Blake Griffin. But until they arrived, this franchise was a disgrace. And their owner, Donald Sterling, is a slumlord who paid $2.725 million for discriminating against blacks and Hispanics. And once said, "Um, you've got to call a woman you're having sex with honey because you can't remember her name. And Ted Stepien has a bad name around the NBA. Number three, the Chicago Cubs. Hey, whatever. Everybody knows what's going on with the Chicago Cubs. At number two on this list of top ten worst sports franchises, the Detroit Lions. Barry Sanders, all you got to do is look at him. One of the greatest running backs of all time, the greatest lion of them all. Got so fed up with this team's chronic ineptitude, a playoff record since 1960 of 1-10. One and 10, That he retired at the age of 31, notifying the Lions by sending them a curt statement to his hometown paper, the Wichita Eagle. And he left just in time because then Matt Millen took over and totally destroyed the team. The number one worst franchise, every Cleveland sports team. I I couldn't make this up. Uh, Mistakes by the lake, then more mistakes. Uh According to GQ, to the great people of Cleveland, you gave us Harvey Pekar, and apparently you've got a world-class orchestra. But facts are facts, and since your city is synonymous with Akron-born LeBron James, let's look at the Cleveland sports perspective from his perspective. Between the Browns, the Indians, and the Cavaliers, Cleveland last celebrated a title four years before LeBron's mother was born. That's a combined 152 seasons of futility. James ditched the Cavs, not because he was the king of Akron, but because he was the Oracle of Ohio. And in his formative years, he witnessed the Cleveland teams suffer the drive, which, of course, was John Elway. The fumble, Ernest Beiner fumbling at the goal line against the Broncos. That, to me, was the worst defeat a Cleveland sports team had ever suffered. The shot, Michael Jordan beating the Cavs. Then the move when Art Modell decided Cleveland was such a hole he'd rather field his team in Baltimore. James, according to GQ, surely knew that if he stayed in Ohio, some kind of ridiculous fate would befall him. The hangnail, the cramp, the curse, maybe an aneurysm. Hence the decision, but the number one worst sports franchise In the history of the world is every Cleveland sports franchise, according to GQ. Oh, we're rounding into the last two weeks of the National Football League season. And one of the big stories around the NFL this year has been the fact that they have put the Super Bowl this season in the Meadowlands of New Jersey. And now, because of all of the uproar going on, not only because of that, but because the weather could get bad, the NFL has come out and said that if the weather does become an issue... Frank Supovitz, Senior Vice President of Events for the NFL, says there are contingency plans for multiple different days. Now, Supovitz told the New York Daily News there is the potential of a move-up scenario. There's the potential of a move-back scenario, depending upon what we see coming. It could potentially be on a Saturday, or it could be on a Monday or Tuesday. There is also a scenario where we could play the following weekend a scenario that is incredibly unlikely, according to the league. You're dealing with progressively infinitesimal possibilities. Officials held a press conference to assure the public that snow or ice will not hinder the game on February 2nd at MetLife Stadium and when it will debut as the first outdoor cold-weather Super Bowl in NFL history. Frankly, I think the NFL should reap what it sows, and that would be that this game would be just a muddy, rainy, sleety mess so that nobody is ever going to want to play the Super Bowl in a cold-weather city ever again. This is simply a money-grab by the NFL, and that is all putting this game in New York is. Well, some bad news out of the NFL yesterday. Washington Redskins linebacker London Fletcher, one of the most durable players in NFL history, says there's a 99% chance he'll retire at the end of the season. Fletcher announced Wednesday that Sunday's game against the Dallas Cowboys will almost certainly be his final home game in the NFL. He held out a 1% chance that he'll return next year just in case he has a change of heart. The 38-year-old undrafted player from Division III John Carroll up in Cleveland has never missed a game in the NFL He's played in 254 consecutive games, the longest streak by a defensive player since the 1970 merger. He's also started 213 in a row. That's an all-time mark for a linebacker. Good for you, London Fletcher. You're leaving on your own terms. Well, we're getting to the time of the year where the discussion turns to coaches on the hot seat. CBS Sports' Jason LaCanfora talks about those coaches and who may or may not be out of work early in the new year.
1: We already know the Houston Texans have begun their coaching search. Quietly, the Minnesota Vikings have done the same, reaching out to potential candidates. They've played much better lately down the stretch, but from what I'm hearing, a change there from Leslie Frazier is inevitable. And we know in Washington, Mike Shanahan, uh, owner Dan Snyder is not saying much, but for him to bring Shanahan back, even with new coordinators, which is something that I'm told Shanahan is privately trying to sell to ownership, I don't think ownership's buying that. I don't think they're going to bring in more of Mike Shanahan's buddies and let him try to continue running that thing there. I think those those days are over. So that's three right there we know are going to be open. The rest of the NFC East, other than Chip Kelly, very interesting. Tom Coughlin, does he retire? Is he nudged a little bit into retirement? Can the Giants get off the mat and show anything down the stretch? If they don't, that may push Coughlin one way or the other, and in Dallas, no one's talking about Jerry Jones giving Jason Garrett a November 15th vote of confidence or whatever it was. That's out the window. It meant nothing when he said it. This team loses down the stretch. I and everyone I talked to in the league expect Jerry Jones to be looking for a new head coach. Dallas obviously could still win their division, so that's to be determined. But if they go on this path they're on of blowing games, losing this NFC East lead, having their season end at around 500, Jerry Jones is very likely to make a change. Then we go outside that division. Who else is coaching for their job? Well, obviously, Rex Ryan is. Um, how he finishes these last couple of games. Does Geno Smith show anything? Does his defense continue to slip a little bit, as it has in the second half? That could all lead to John Idzik making a change. If left to his own devices, GM John Idzik would have brought in a different coach last year. It's part of the job requirements of his first year GM job. He was told to evaluate the head coach, then make a decision. A lot of people I talk to think Idzik may want someone a little more offensive-minded there, if possible. So, certainly, Rex, very much under review. Mike Munchak in Tennessee, same scenario. They've slipped in the second half. Unfortunately for him, they lost their quarterback early in the season. Fitzpatrick turns it over so much, no coach is going to prosper. But if we're looking at a, a five-win season, under new ownership, very much screams out a likely change. I do hear GM Rustin Webster is safe, though. Tampa Bay, Greg Sciano, can he show anything down the stretch? Does he really want to be there? Do the Glazers still want him there? I hear from people that if Texas can't get the big names it wants for its coaching search, Ciano could ultimately be in play there. And the Glazers, he's got some term left on his contract. Let him go to the school. You're off the hook for the money. This is a guy who you were pretty much at the middle of the season planning on firing anyone anyway. And this is a guy who next year you may have to part with. Instead of go year to year, why not just make the move now? Oakland, uh, Dennis Allen there. I hear Reggie McKenzie, the general manager, is safe. But owner Mark Davis thought about letting go of Allen after his first season at the helm. This year, Oakland, again, finishing slow, not getting it done. Slipped up a little bit from where they were. Still don't have a quarterback. Boy, oh boy, big game with San Diego this week. They knocked them off the first time around. If Oakland doesn't show something down the stretch, that's another one where people believe a change could be made. In Atlanta, Mike Smith It's still a team that very much could end up with a top three or four pick. Uh, It's a team that has fallen woefully short of expectations. Similarly to Houston, Mike Smith, though, has had some playoff success there, at least in early rounds. He's very well liked by GM Thomas Dimitrov, and by the owner, Arthur Blank. But, again, they should have lost to Washington last week. Washington turned it over seven times. Atlanta barely won by one, came down on a last two-point conversion. Atlanta still not playing good football. They don't seem like a team that is going to finish on the upswing. How much of it is personnel? Certainly a lot of it. How much of it is coaching? Ownership's going to have to decide this. Arthur Blank says he wants to stay the course, but no people in the stands. I'm not sure how they're going to have that – person to sell as the face of the franchise if they're trying to get a new stadium built sell personal seat licenses for all that. So the economics could still play into that decision. So I'm going to include Atlanta on this list. I'll put them in last. I don't think they make a change unless the owner feels he's forced to. If they limp down the stretch, maybe that forces them to.
0: Well, that's a look at what some of the coaches that are on the hot seat. But today it was also announced that John McLean of the Houston Chronicle has already interviewed Lovey Smith as their first potential candidate to replace Gary Kubiak, who was fired just a few weeks ago. Now, this isn't surprising, mainly because Bob McNair, the Texans' owner, actually mentioned Smith's name at the press conference announcing Kubiak's firing and the promotion of Case Keenum to starting quarterback, by the way. Smith, who is actually from Texas, was 81-63 and with the Chicago Bears in nine years as their head coach, Phil Emery relieved him of his duties in 2013, following a 10-win year 10 win season, no less, and replaced him with Mark Trespin. Smith spent this season out of coaching. Now, besides being a viable candidate, Smith also fulfills, right off the bat, the Rooney Rule requirements for the Texans' coaching search. It seems unlikely that's why the Texans interviewed him, however. According to McLean, Penn State coach Bill O'Brien and Chargers offensive coordinator Ken Wisenhunt are possible candidates for the gig. Current interim coach Wade Phillips will get an interview. Levy Smith would be a good choice down there. So would Bill O'Brien of Penn State. I don't think the Texans are going to be a losing ball club for very long in the near future. While Brandon Browner's fight over a one-year suspension isn't over yet, at least not as far as he and his agent are concerned, On Wednesday evening, shortly after news broke that the NFL had denied his appeal of a violation of the league's substance abuse policy, the Seattle Seahawks cornerback wrote on his Twitter account, he will continue to fight with all the legal resources available. And his agent, Peter Schaefer, told Fox Sports he will take legal action if all appeals permitted under the NFL's collective bargaining agreement are unsuccessful. A source told Fox Sports, That Browner already has filed another appeal, and it's clear when that appeal will be heard. The NFL did not specify the length of the suspension for Browner, who tested positive for marijuana this fall, neither in a statement to the media or in communication to teams on Wednesday. The league has only stated the suspension is for an indefinite period. Schaefer confirmed a previous report by Fox Sports that stated Browner claimed the cup the collector used during the test was damaged. Gosh, wasn't that used once before by Ryan Braun? Schaefer also confirmed previous reports by Fox Sports and other outlets that Browner was advanced to stage three of the substance abuse policy because he didn't take the required test while he was out of the NFL. Browner played in the CFL from 2007 through 2010. Browner, who was put in stage one of the program after a failed test during his first stint in the NFL, contested he should not have been advanced because he never received notification he was supposed to be testing regularly. Schaefer said the arbitrator didn't even mention that in his ruling. Well, as I said at the start of this segment, two games are left in the NFL season for the Cleveland Browns. Both are on the road. And after they closed out their home season last Sunday with another loss, this time to the Chicago Bears, 38 to 31, that dropped the Browns to a record of four and ten this season. And again, they are in last place in the Northern Division. Now, this Sunday, the Browns play in New York against the Jets and rookie quarterback Geno Smith. Browns coach Rob Chudzinski, wrapping up
3: his first season, gives the Jets. Satternberry Report to the media. Uh, we're very focused on these last two weeks uh, of the season, and we want to close out the season the right way. Uh, we're committed to doing everything we can uh, to get prepared to win these next two games, and obviously that starts this week with the Jets. Uh, they're a very solid team, a lot of respect for their coaching staff. Uh, as you look at them on tape, offensively, uh, very versatile with big play potential, uh, their quarterback Geno Smith is a young talented player who we had a chance to take a look at and get to know him before the draft, uh developing and uh has a has a you know, he's very athletic and has a big arm. Uh their offensive line is very solid. Uh it's a good physical group. They run the ball very well and do a good job up front. Uh defensively, uh they have an outstanding defense, uh play the m- multiple fronts, pressure packages, uh their front seven. Uh, or there's a lot of playmakers, uh, so that'll be a big challenge for us, again, uh, And getting ready to play and uh, going through that process. And our guys will be excited and, and ready to play. Uh, we're traveling to New York, and, and uh, we'll be ready for the game.
0: Well, let's hope the Browns are ready for that game because next week they finish the season in Pittsburgh against the Steelers. A Pittsburgh playoff berth could be on the line in that game. Most likely a top draft pick will be on the line for the Browns over the next two weeks. Let's look at the Sunday schedule besides the Cleveland at New York Jets game. The early games on Sunday. Oh, keep in mind, there is no NFL game tonight. No NFL game this evening because of the holiday season. Okay. Here's what's going on in the National Football League on Sunday. This is the early games. Miami will be at Buffalo. That's at 1 o'clock on CBS. I'm taking Miami in that ball game. Miami wins out. They're in the playoffs, folks. Minnesota will be at Cincinnati. I got the Bengals winning that ball game. They have to win every game now and hope Baltimore stumbled somewhere down the road. Denver will be at Houston. Tennessee will be at Jacksonville. I've got Tennessee losing that game at Jacksonville. I think the Jaguars are going to bounce back. And Indianapolis will be at Kansas City. Well, New Orleans is going to be at Carolina on Sunday. That's 1 o'clock on Fox. And Brian Billick previews that event
4: all are this late into the season when you have playoff caliber teams or teams on the cusp and none bigger when the new orleans saints visit the carolina panthers now we saw what happened when carolina went into new orleans you know my mantra right now i'm waiting to see those signature wins on the road by playoff teams to see how good they really are they're few and far between right now the challenge is really the carolina with new orleans surprisingly losing on the road in a dome to St. Louis that has opened the door for Carolina. They've got to hold serve at home. They certainly look good over the weekend. If, again, as long as they don't fall behind early, that's the one criticism I have of the Carolina Panthers. If they get behind early, I'm not sure they're a team that can catch up with, in terms of Cam uh, Newton who's playing very, very well. But that defense that is just overpowering, I'm a little perplexed by New Orleans. Them going on the road, again, can they do this in Carolina? Can they get that rhythm? And they're healthy right now. It's not like Drew Brees doesn't have all his weapons around him. whether it's Jimmy Graham, Marcus Colston on the outside, and obviously the big one is Darren Sproles. Is he healthy? They've got all their weapons. Defensively, saw a little chink in the armor. This is going to be a big game for both these teams. If for no other reason, New Orleans needs to show that, because they're going to be on the road to the playoffs at some point, can they go on the road and win?
0: Well, that's going to be the big question. New Orleans blew a great opportunity last week in St. Louis. They need to go to Carolina this weekend and win that ballgame. But Carolina's on a roll. I'm going to take Carolina in this ball game, and they can clinch that Southern division with a victory over New Orleans. Now, one of the games that was completely blown last week was the Dallas-Green Bay game. Now, the Cowboys are going to be in Washington, and the Cowboys need to win these next two ball games in order to have any shot at making the playoffs. I don't think they can do it. They've got to win both games and then hope for help. And my question to you tonight, as I pose to you, is when is Tony Romo going to be responsible for anything that goes wrong with the Cowboys? Anytime Tony Romo has a good game, the Cowboys win because of Tony Romo. When the Cowboys lose a ball game, it's because somebody else had a bad ball game other than Tony Romo. Do you realize that now the reason that the Cowboys blew that 23-point lead against the Packers and fourth-string Packer quarterback Matt Flynn is because the coaches called the wrong plays and Des Bryant walked off the field, with a minute to go. Well, Tony Romo is the same quarterback that he has been under three different head coaches, Bill Parcells, Wade Phillips, and Jason Garrett. He's also the same quarterback that he has always been under different offensive coordinators. First you've got Jason Garrett, then you have now Bill Callahan. There's always a question mark as to who has been calling the plays this year. Supposedly, it is Bill Callahan, funneled through head coach Jason Garrett. But are you going to tell me the biggest complaint that I've heard this week is the fact that the Cowboys quit giving the ball to Demarcus Murray. He had over 100 yards rushing on 18 carries, and in the middle of the third quarter, they just gave up giving him the football. Are you telling me that Tony Romo, who is supposed to be the field general for that ball club, when he kept getting pass play after pass play funneled in through Callahan and Garrett, he couldn't audible at the line of scrimmage to give the ball to Murray and run some time off the clock? After all, we give all sorts of accolades to not only Romo, but to Flacco, To Aaron Rodgers when he plays. Peyton Manning. Tom Brady. For taking control of their team. For being the leader. Well, if Tony Romo is the leader of the Dallas Cowboys, then why isn't he taking control of the offense when he knows this team is running the ball successfully? And they need to run the ball in order to keep their defense, which leaks like a sieve, by the way, off the field the best thing for the Cowboys to do is run the football, right? All I've heard over the past two days is that Tony Romo has so much pressure on him because he has to score 35 points in a game for them to win with their defense playing the way it is. I contend if the Cowboys would go back to the ground-and-pound running game that Murray seems set up to do, that they would be in better position to win football games and keep their defense off the field in times of trouble. But Tony Romo, I think, in my mind, I'm just taking this into consideration right now. I think Tony Romo believes that he has to be the star of this ball club, that he is the highest-priced player on the team. He's the highest-profiled player on the team. He's the quarterback of the Dallas Cowboys, and he has to be the star. And nobody else not Des Bryant, not Jason Witten, not Demarcus Murray are going to outshine him. And when it came time for them to hand the football off to Murray and win that game against the Packers and solidify a playoff spot, Tony Romo got jealous and decided that it was going to be him that was going to win that football game. And when Tony Romo decides that, that is when the Cowboys run into a tremendous amount of trouble. Tony Romo is not the quarterback that ESPN says he is. Tony Romo is an average quarterback with outstanding ball games, but like for example, the game against Denver this year, all I heard was that you cannot blame Tony Romo for that loss against the Denver Broncos. Well the fact of the matter is Tony Romo threw an interception, key interception at the end of that ball game and that's what sealed the victory for the Broncos. Tony Romo, when it comes right down to it, is not the man with the plan in Dallas. Now here's a look at the NFL schedule for the rest of the day, the late games. Tampa Bay will be at St. Louis. Arizona is at Seattle. I've got Seattle winning that game. Of course, that's at home. The New York Giants will play at Detroit. The Lions better win this ballgame. New England will be at Baltimore. That one's a toughie. Maybe the highlight game of the day. I'm going to take Baltimore to win over New England. Oakland will be at San Diego, take the Chargers to win that game. Pittsburgh at Green Bay, I've got Pittsburgh winning that one. And then the Sunday night game, Chicago will be at Philadelphia. I think this game means a lot to both ball clubs, but I'm going to take the Bears to sneak that one out. And then the Monday night game, it's the Atlanta Falcons taking on the San Francisco 49ers. I've got the 49ers winning that ball game. Of course, that's on ESPN on Monday night. Well, let's move on into Major League Baseball now. And days after expressing his interest in joining Major League Ball, it appears Japanese pitcher Masahiro Tanaka will stay in Japan, according to multiple reports. Several Japanese newspapers reported today that the Rakuten Golden Eagles, which control the rights to Tanaka until the end of 2015, will not allow major league teams to bid for him. Rakuten will, however, double or triple Tanaka's current salary of approximately $4 million a year. The increase would make him the highest-paid Japanese pitcher in history. Tanaka sources tell Fox Sports 1 insider Ken Rosenthal is the number one target of at least three clubs, the Yankees, Diamondbacks, and Rangers, and probably others. His lack of availability would lead some of those teams to redirect their money elsewhere. The Rangers, for example, will now try to pick up free agent outfielder Shin-Soo Chu. But the Yankees, sources say, are not at this point interested in free agent right-handers Irvin Santana, Ubaldo Jimenez, or Matt Garza. Club officials believe that those pitchers are unlikely to be worth the salaries they will command, leaving the Yankees with a hole in their rotation. Now, Super Agent Scott Boros does some of his finest work in the latter eight stages of free agency. And in this case, the case of Shin Soo Chu, he faces yet another challenge in a career built on slaying them. Find Chu a contract for the one hundred forty million the New York Yankees offered him even after they signed Jacoby Ellsbury. Yes, you heard that right. The Yankees did offer Chu a seven year deal for $140 million, and they turned it down. Asked to confirm the true offer, the Yankee officials declined comment. Well, the Cleveland Indians have been making moves this week. All seem minor, but could contribute to hopefully another winning season in 2014. The Indians acquired Josh Altman on Wednesday from the Colorado Rockies in a trade for outfielder Drew Stubbs. The left-handed Outman is the newest member of Cleveland's revived bullpen, which has seen all-star closer Chris Perez released, as I talked about earlier, and losing free agent right-handers Joe Smith and Matt Albers. The 29-year-old Outman spent most of last season with the Rockies going 3-0 with a 4.33 ERA in 61 appearances. Outman limited left-handed hitters to a 198 average, and he had a 3.41 ERA in hitter-friendly Coors Field. The Indians also have completed a $4.5 million one-year contract with free agent closer John Axford. Axford saved 46 games for Milwaukee in 2011, and he agreed to the contract earlier this week pending a physical. The 30-year-old right-hander lost his closer's job early this season and was traded to St. Louis in August. He went a combined 7-7 seven seven with a 4.02 ERA in 75 appearances for the Brewers and Cardinals. He also blew seven saves. Axford has a 22-19 and 19 career record with a 3.3 ERA and 106 saves in 281 relief appearances. In another move, the Indians have signed veteran right-hander Sean Markham to a minor league contract. Markham can opt out of this deal if the Indians don't add him to the 25 man roster by opening day. In 2013, Markham, who just turned 32, pitched to a 5.3 ERA and had a 2.86 strikeout to walk ratio for the New York Mets. Across parts of eight major league seasons, he's pitched to a 107 ERA plus and a 2.66 strikeout to walk ratio. Of his 188 career appearances, 161 have been starts. Markham was limited by neck and shoulder problems in 2013. He underwent Tommy John surgery in 2008. The Major League Baseball's network's Jim Duquette talks about Markham and what he brings
5: to the tribe. More of a four-pitch mix now. His fastball velocity's he's come down quite a bit. He's about 88 now. Um, and you really look at his last two seasons, uh, he really he's only given you 33 starts combined you know two years ago was the last time he had over 30 starts. So you know from, from the, the, when you look at him in terms of a veteran guy coming off that shoulder surgery, not quite sure he'll be ready for the season. probably the, the, the word is that he probably will be. but what I like about him is hes a, you know he's a veteran kind of crafty guy that can throw his change up at any pitch in any count. that's probably his best pitch. He cuts it sometimes. so from, from that perspective and from the perspective you know when he's been healthy, He's been a mid-three to high-three ERA type of guy. He's pitched in the American League for the most part. Obviously not recently, but over his career with Toronto. So, you know, I think that that transition won't be a big one for him. I think there's a lot of things that make sense for Cleveland, and it's not an awful lot of money either.
0: Markham will likely contend for the fifth spot in the Tribe's starting rotation, and that's going to do it for tonight's show. Hey, next week we are going to be previewing the college football bowl season. We're going to look at the Orange, Rose, Fiesta, Cotton, and Sugar Bowl games, along with the BCS Championship game. That is all on next week's show, which is the day after Christmas. And, of course, that's going to do it for tonight's show. Join us again next Thursday night, 7 o'clock, day after Christmas. Have a Merry Christmas, everyone. Ho, ho, ho. Have a good time. Enjoy your week. Enjoy your holiday. We'll be back next Thursday night at 7 o'clock with the bowl Preview Show. I'm Dave Mitchell. My thanks to Greg Mitchell for being our producer, but most of all, our thanks to you for listening. Happy holidays, Merry Christmas, and good night, everybody. Have a good week. See you next week.